Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm going to have to begin by saying that the title of today's podcast is Intentionally Misleading. (laughs) But it is a reminder to myself that I want to have today's guest back in the salon again really soon. You see, when fellow saloner Kevin first told me about Sophia Rockland, well, one of the things that I most wanted to talk with her about was her work in the Amazon helping to replant the forest with new ayahuasca vines. And the reason that I need to remind myself is, <laughs> well, that's the one question I completely forgot to ask her. You see, uh, Sophia Rockland, as young as she is, has already had an amazing life. As you'll hear, she's just 27 years old, and yet she has already adventured far and wide. So if you're still in your 20s, I'm sure that you'll find her stories quite fascinating. Uh, But if you're a parent of a world-roving 20-year-old, well, maybe this conversation then can help you better understand what's rocking your world right now. And for what it's worth, my younger brother and I did similar things and rocked our parents' world as well. But later they did tell me that they secretly were very excited about our travels. At least that's what they told me. Anyway, I'm about to play a recording of a conversation that we had in the live salon just two weeks ago. And it was our last live salon for the year, but I will be getting together on Monday nights with my supporters on Patreon once again beginning in January. And uh, on evenings when we have a guest join us, uh, like we did two weeks ago, I'll be podcasting them here in what I guess we'll call the Classic Salon. (laughs) Uh, And that's where I also will post the links to uh, Sophia's personal website, uh, along with some of the other links that we talked about. And you can find those at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, had you been with us two weeks ago, this is what you would have heard. Uh, Somehow Kevin found out about you, and then once he told me about you, I was completely fascinated uh, you know, you're you're obviously very young here in the salon. You know, we've taken a lot of hits because it's a bunch of old white men. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we've done over over 50 podcasts with uh, Shauna Holm and, and uh, she's interviewed a whole lot of different women. And, and we've had uh, quite a few women on here and, and uh, particularly now young women. And uh, the big project we have going right now is being led by by. Uh, uh, Kat Lakey, who is uh, Kat's still in her 20s. She's also living in Peru. Uh, mm-hmm. I think she's in Cusco right now. And uh, <clears throat> our, our mutual friend of the salon, Leonard Picard, who is the, the man you may have heard of a uh, long time ago, 20 years ago, got busted for uh, allegedly making LSD in a missile silo. And he's written this, this marvelous book that's being, you know, getting uh, rave reviews by scholars around the world. And so she's putting together a, uh, a podcast that's going to last a couple of years. We've done two of them already on here where we're doing an audio uh, recording of a book that he has written. That's uh, literally, it's a masterpiece being taught in Oxford and Cambridge and places like that. And what I find fascinating, there's a whole big lead up to the fact that the stars of the salon lately are young women. <laughs> They're not old white men. So, um, you know, you, you, you have, you started in, in New York. You've got a several degrees. Uh, 
what I, you know, we can get into the, the book you've written with Daniel Pinchbeck, who's been, you know, he was featured in podcast number four here number, in 2005. So uh, we, we've done a lot about ayahuasca, about uh, Daniel's been with us. But what fascinates me is how a, a young woman like you can can travel, can move from New York City to where now you're doing what I consider the epitome of, of saving the environment by replanting wow. ayahuasca. You know, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. So what my first question is, is how did you get from where you started to where you are? And the reason I'm asking this is we have a lot of people that hear these podcasts who are in their their uh, 30s and 40s who are raising children who are becoming teenagers, young adults moving into college. How did did mm-hmm. you get from from wherever you started to where you are now? Because you're an inspiration to a lot of us. So, uh, oh, you now, Sophia. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. This is cool. I haven't been in a psychedelic salon before, quite like this one. Um, so, hi everybody. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, I am actually sitting in my childhood bedroom right now, so not much has changed. Um, but I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I'm born and raised in, in New York City. You know, my parents are um, immigrants from Russia and from France. And um, I guess I was always in a, I grew up in what I think of like the, the mecca of secularism, you know, like all of my friends were on the track to do the, magazine thing or the finance thing or the politics thing or whatever everything was kind of preset New Yorker life um and I found myself like always gravitating towards ritual um and community things that I didn't have growing up you know and I never have a religious background that you you no none none at all I mean no no nothing at all I mean ritual 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 comes in from the outside then to you uh outside of your, your normal. It did, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't. Like I actually found myself sitting in the corner of this room here. You know, when you're like a little kid and you can steal candles, you're not allowed to light fires yet or something like that. So I'd, I'd, I'd steal those little Yankee uh, scented candles and set up. And I, and I guess I kind of intuitively set up altars or something where I would just sort of sit down and hang out and listen to music and draw things. But I really liked this containers you know that you would create that were extraordinary you know they're like you 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 stop time and you hang out in those little spaces um and at the same time I was also uh acting like I went to I won't give you the whole story but I I went to theater camp I got discovered um and then I got sort of funneled into the the New York City acting industry which you know, it is what it is. I did like a couple of commercials and TV and voiceover, but as a, as a young girl, it's, it's not a good, you don't want to put a kid in that thing. It's very painful, lots of rejection, lots of validation based off of how you look or not validation, you know, but ultimately it was like, I was interested in, in being other people. You know, I always loved that idea of like putting on a new mask and, and seeing something new and seeing things from a new perspective and and there were moments where you really do enter in trance when you when you're acting so I always had like an affinity for trance and ritual and uh and needless to say you know I got I got swept up into the New York City burner scene Burning Man scene and um did you you find Burning Man through through friends is that how you connected with it I'll tell you let me tell you how I found Burning Man I found 
I was in Bloomingdale's, the department store Bloomingdale's, um, uh, procuring a fake ID behind a coat rack. And <clears throat> this guy's like, you know, I, I met this girl there and she was very cruel. And then from there she was like, yeah, man, you ever hear Burning Man? And so her and I, we were like 16, 17 years old and we started, uh, you know, illegally entering into these parties with our new cool IDs. I think I was from Maryland. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what was your name? Do you remember? Same name. Oh, okay, cool. Good yeah, idea. So. Good. Well, they weren't. They weren't to be. They weren't stolen IDs. They were refurbished. Just like a fancy thing. Just, like, just as I, just as a little aside, a friend of mine in college was an art major, and he made the fake IDs for us. Oh, sweet. By, by making a great big copy of our ID, and then with a cutout for the picture, and you'd sit behind it. And he'd take your picture. So everybody had the same name. And after, but he took one of himself, leaning out and pointing at his, his age. And he inadvertently <laughs> showed that one night in a bar. And a whole bunch so of us got cool. called in on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, it's fine. I, I am very happy to dip into nostalgia. I kind of, I, I just turned 27. And I, I still get a little nervous when I go into bars sometimes. Like when, <laughs> I'm drinking ayahuasca on tap in the Amazon, and yet I feel like an imposter when I go <laughs> try to get a beer somewhere. Uh, <laughs> that that will never go away. I I promise you. I'm sorry. Is that true? All right. Let's. Uh, I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes, I mean, so the, so yeah. Again, like ritual, altered states, um, Burning Man, and then I found, I ran into like the psychedelic trance scene. So you know, 180 to 240 beats per minute, just loved it all um and then i heard about ayahuasca and different plant medicines kind of like in in whispers like i always thought about it like uh you know in harry potter you don't say voldemort out loud like people kind of always under under the breath kind of thing and i found it very interesting because it wasn't it wasn't spoken of like any other thing you know there was like a reverential air to it um and the more i learned about it i learned that it actually came from cultures and from people who are still you know practicing lifestyles um in a way that are you know in in ritual and in harmony with their environment so obviously i was like should we go there um went to my first ceremony in a yoga studio almost nine years ago now and um and then from there i just went full gonzo anthropologist you know i was like working as a waitress during the evenings and then i'd save up all my money to go to ceremonies and it was it was probably not a very wise thing i didn't have like a discerning eye for it at the time but i just went super deep into the ayahuasca underground as it were in new york and uh let, let, me interrupt you. Let, let me interrupt you for just a second, Sophia. Please you do. shouldn't feel bad about not having an eye for it in the beginning. First of all, you were still a teenager or in your early 20s, and none of us had an eye for it. I was in my 40s when I found ayahuasca, and I behaved very much like you did. So don't don't feel bad about that. We all had to learn as we go, and that's what you're doing is helping people learn. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I want you to feel good about where you're coming from. I appreciate. It. No, I mean, yeah, it's you know, I guess we don't we don't have like there's no manual and there's no framework yeah. for these things, and that's that is both the beauty and the peril of working with psychedelics, and you know, in all of this, it's that it's it is ambiguous and weird and. 
and there are things happen, you know, I mean, I'm, I was very lucky that nothing bad happened to me, but I recently was in the jungle and I had a healer, my, my main guy, you know, tell me that there was a, a lot of gunk in my energy because of all of the different people I was drinking ayahuasca with. So, so it is, you can interpret that different ways, but, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I was going to these ceremonies. I was like gonzo anthropologist. And then I said, you know, when you're in college, you're like 19 and you're like, what am I going to study? And then I said, well, I'm just going to study ayahuasca. So then I became an anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, "Mm, not going to be math, not going to be this. I kind of looked around and I, and I liked anthropology and my parents hated anthropology. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yep. And from there, I just, I, and then I, and then I hooked up with a community called the Sequoia in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Um, And I think that's like kind of the, that's the, that's the story I tell every time, but that's really the kind of pivotal moment in my life where. um, Now, how, how did you get there to connect with them? How did, how did this all, what led to it? There's like a, there's like a meta story. It's your your night. So let's, let's hear your story. I'm really, I'm really fascinated because you, you can, you can inspire and so many people can relate to you, not just young people, but parents, you know, we have a lot of people listening who are the age of your parents who are wondering what's going on with their children too, you know, and I've got, I've got grandchildren who are not much younger than you. So, you know, you're, you, you have a lot more going for you than you realize. And I want you to just, you know, let us know how you, how you made these connections. How do you, how did you have the courage to step out from what a lot of your peers must've been doing? How did I have the courage? I wish I could give myself that much credit, you know, but it was, it was more of like a magnetism. It was, it wasn't like, uh, I'm going to go do this thing. It was like, there's no other thing to do kind of. Um, yeah. Interestingly, I guess I, I, I learned about the Sequoia where a small uh, indigenous community in the Ecuadorian Amazon dwindling population around 500 people right now. Um, through Daniel and through Jonathan Miller Weisberger, who you may have spoken with before. You, you know, he, he was, uh, he was here just like two or three weeks ago. Oh, he was. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I had a feeling we might be in the same orbit. I have, I'm a big fan of Jonathan. Great guy. He is a wonderful man. He's a very special man. Yeah. So actually I for a, Jonathan was like a kind of role model of mine for a while, you know, because he had such a, such a profound relationship with, you know, with the plants and ethnobotany and this Taoist outlook. He was kind of surfer, chill. He's just amazing. Um, so through Jonathan and through Daniel Pinchbeck, who I had met when I was working at Evolver, which was a company that Daniel started. Um, I learned about the Sequoia and then, you know, one thing led to another. I received a small piece of paper uh, with a at hotmail.com kind of email address. And, um, and then I booked a, fl- a flight to Quito, to Ecuador. I was told to, you know, be at the airport at this time. And I remember going into Barnes and Noble and looking at, um, a, like a lonely planet or like a trip guide book to make a fake location to give to my parents. And I said, I was, I was, I was like, I'm going to this butterfly sanctuary, you know, and, 
really. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I really shaved a couple of years off of their life with that trip. And, and you're, and you say you have no courage. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't give myself that much credit. I think it was, yeah, maybe it was a little courage or <laughs> blind, blind stupidity, but, um, but it went well, you know, it went well. And I, I mean, I, it's hard to say, you know, I guess it's all good until it isn't good with this sorts of things, right? So I got lucky, but good people. And of course, Jonathan knew them. So I knew I was in good hands. And, um, and yeah, I mean, long story short, I ended up visiting the Sequoia several times, going to the Ecuadorian Amazon and really beginning to research. My approach was always like two dimensions, two layers. You know, there was that academic level of inquiry, reading the texts and this and so on. And then actually having a personal growth relationship, being like a young lady and learning and healing and getting over stuff, you know, and, and growing up with the medicine. So, and that's, and that's been my approach since. And then, I mean, really since then being in, in with the Sequoia there, they, um, they were hit by one of the worst environmental catastrophes in the region in 1964 which was an oil spill, uh, which some people call like the Chernobyl of the Amazon, like unbelievable. Um, so I went there kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed, excited about everything. And, and I, and I saw a scale of environmental devastation of, um, unfathomable proportions, you know, just like you can't even, when you see it like that, you just can't. And so a lot of my, my trips, my working with the medicine was actually becoming those landscapes. My brain turned into like a petrol sponge and my body was like cogs of a machine. And, and, and I really, really felt that. And then, you know, from there, my work with psychedelics has always been very much related to like this sort of transpersonal relationship to the land, you know, so it's never been just about me, although you, you do have to do the work. You do have to clean the house and check up on things. You know, uh, Kathleen Harrison calls it like mending baskets, weaving baskets, you know. But my, my work here and I think what I, what, I, what I bring is really the ecological perspective, which is really that these psychedelics can allow us to feel these environments in a way that we've cut ourselves up from. So. And that's pretty much it. And from there, I've just been moving closer and closer to the Amazon, studying in Spanish, researching environmental devastation, and just getting so, you know, the intersection psychedelics. And, uh, and finally, they're all starting to come together, which is really uh, cool to see, you know, really awesome. So. You know, your, your story, Sophia, brings out uh, two, two things that I find really fascinating. One is having no no childhood enmeshed in in Catholicism like a lot of people like a lot of us, sure. Sure. and still you were drawn to ritual, uh, mm -hmm. which I find really fascinating yeah. as a human characteristic. And the other thing is something that everybody talks about. All of us that have had any uh, psychedelic experience, particularly with ayahuasca, is the environmental aspect. It it pulls you deeper into the planet to the to the whole mesh of of living. Uh, light of life on the planet and what what uh we will get into uh, how you met daniel and all in a bit daniel you know he was the fourth speaker here in the salon daniel and i go way back so uh that that i'd like to hear that story too but what what uh i want want to hear a little bit more about the book that the two of you have written and and as i told you in the email uh people here in the salon know 
quite a bit about ayahuasca. We've, we've covered it quite a bit. But the last uh, chapters in your book talk about, uh, as I understand, I haven't read it yet. I've just read reviews of it. Uh, you, you're talking about how ayahuasca really is, is moving in, moving out of the jungle into culture and how that's affecting both culture and the, the jungle and the people who, who really have grown up, uh, you know, a thousand years with ayahuasca. So do you want to, you know, talk about some of that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing with the book, you know, is that there, there is no one story about ayahuasca. And the only story that myself and Daniel are able to tell is the one of it traveling beyond the Amazon, right? So I could never pretend to give an indigenous perspective or this or that, but what we really wanted to do was create, well, actually we didn't even have that intention so much as it just kind of emerged. We just started interviewing people. I I think I organized 80-ish interviews with different people and it was just people f- mostly from the global north or the, or the west um, who had, whose lives had been transformed by ayahuasca. So they were everyone from large real estate developers to physicians to people battling chronic illness, um, people who I call like first generation drinkers, you know, like their families don't know, there's no context for it. And yet it's a part of their lives in a pretty like serious way. Um, and then from there, yeah, I mean, we just, we, we interviewed, interviewed, and then I guess I started to see, it's like a, I used a method that we use in social sciences, which is, uh, you're, you're looking at the, you're looking at the transcripts of the interviews and you start to see what words pop float up to the top the most, you know? So the main topics we found were issues like religion, gender, uh, economics. So like the commodification of ayahuasca, um, the healing effects, uh, the psychopharmacology, and those are kind of how the chapters are arranged in this sort of like quilt formation. Um, and, and, and that's, but that was fun, you know? So I think the book reads, you know, partially like a textbook, but it's like a per, it's like it goes, it dives, it dives into more of these textbook overviews, sort of literature analysis of the different people who have been writing and thinking about ayahuasca to those very tender and personal moments and stories that people have with ayahuasca um and and that's really yeah the the story is is the phenomenon of it traveling so far you know beyond the amazon rainforest and then putting that into context you know because there tends to be a bit of like um some i guess a, a romanticism no around ayahuasca being this uh, feminine entity that's coming and, and, and enamoring the world. And that's one perspective, which maybe I have a little bit, or you look at it in context and say, listen, psychoactive plants have been shaping civilizations for thousands of years. And if you look at ayahuasca next to uh, coca or coffee, or um, I mean, shout it out, you name it, you know, sugar, um, we have all of these plants have, dramatically shifted the way that we work as a society so what i what i hope you know when we're bringing to the table with it is really saying looking at ayahuasca from that historical perspective what is the what legacy might ayahuasca leave right what are the properties or the personality of ayahuasca and how does that how does that translate to to our daily lives so it's it's an it's been an interesting trip that book yeah it was it was hard to write it was you know, it's, it's fascinating as as you point out how 
ayahuasca has has all of a sudden sort of blossomed, at least in the the Western world in in particular. And you know, I it's been a little over twenty years since I had my first experience, but I spent a full close to ten years before that searching for ayahuasca. It was almost impossible to find. And and as I tell people now, you don't have to search for it; it'll find you when you're ready. Yeah, and that's right, what right, happens right. now. But once it found me, uh, I was fortunate to uh, you know, come into a, a group where uh, Don Jose Campos was our, our ayahuascaro. And, and he's performed, you know, uh, ayahuasca ceremonies on, I think, every continent except Antarctica now. And uh, he, you know, I've talked to him about in broken English, Spanish, because unfortunately, like, unlike you, I don't speak Spanish. Right. Uh, but but uh, he he talked about how he'd received and many of his ayahuasca friends had, had received sort of a message that it's time to bring it uh, out to more people that she wanted to get the message out. Mm-hmm. And, and the two things that I, until just tonight, I thought ayahuasca was a refuge for us. What my mother called a fallen Catholic, you know, because <laughs> I'd left the church. Yeah. And I liked the ritual. I missed the ritual <clears throat> and ayahuasca provided that. But now you provide evidence that it's a human need for ritual coming not necessarily from a childhood memory. And then the other thing is is the environmental aspects of it, that never, never in human history have we needed an environmental uh, message, <laughs> uh, uh, mission uh, statement from from the plants like we get yeah. from ayahuasca. Yeah. We see in the United States this emerging like demographic of people who are called SBNRs, which means spiritual but not religious. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like the big cults of the SBNRs. Um, but that's true. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying it that way, I guess. It's, it's, um, I, always, I always felt like it was a nap. It really came from a deep, deep internal place, you know, that I wanted to, to connect. And, and, and you could argue, I mean, I've, I've looked at the different, I was very interested at in looking at the different um, stories people tell about ayahuasca. So let's say, you know, you have this word, ayahuasca, and next to it, you say drug. Then you say medicine. Then you say grandmother. You say devil's potion, savior, um, panacea, and you can create dozen. You can create a whole word cloud with dozens of different, you know, describers. And and I find that so interesting. So really, we. I mean, we have a bit of a. Um, if you look in the in the newspaper articles, and even just for me anecdotally people talk about ayahuasca like some sort of a healing panacea you know like it's coming and to save us all and reconnect us but if you look um historically really at different communities in the amazon you see that there are different uses for the plants you know it's been used for both lightness and darkness it's yin yang it's healing and sorcery it's divining the location of you know animals and cheating lovers so it's a tool more than anything so it's a very interesting thing it's like a reflection of our consciousness and 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 what we see is so much of this like you you, i mean i'm sure everyone's heard like mother ayahuasca or grandmother ayahuasca but as far as my research and knowledge goes in the amazon basin people don't refer to ayahuasca as like a feminine entity necessarily it's not as like you know, gendered. So does that say something about our desire as like SBNR, spiritual but not religious, to 
want some sort of a feminine earth entity. Do you know what I mean? I find that like, so- like Gaia, like Gaia herself. Right, right, and we and we and we and we create that, you know. But again, I mean, at this, my perspectives have changed a lot. I, I came to it much more, um, less critical, and now I find myself adopting more of like a materialist perspective. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm like very ambivalent about everything. It could be this perspective, it could be that perspective. I have no, I have no commitment to one view about anything. <laughs> you, 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 you remind me of many of us here. And what, what I'd suggest, I, I put all of my podcasts, I, I uh, archive them up on archive.org. So about 40 years from now, you might want to look up this interview and see how much you have changed. I, I won't be able to be here to uh, ask you about that. But I hope Kevin or somebody would look you up and ask him because I, I think you'll find it quite fascinating how you change yourself. Should we put a Google Calendar reminder? Like, 40, 40? <laughs> Let, let's hope Google Calendar is gone by then, okay? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Finish its tenure. Yeah. So let, let me uh, right now just uh, for anybody who, who wants to ask some questions, let me open it up for some questions here before I, I don't want to hog all of your time myself. So. Anybody you want to either raise your hand uh, in, in your video? Oh, go ahead, Mally. Uh, for someone who's done, you know, in this un- New York underground scene, mm-hmm. can you describe the difference between ayahuasca in that scene and then in the native scene? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even within the New York scene, like one ceremony will be radically different from another, you know, and it's very much about who's running it. And you could have a person who went to the jungle for two weeks and is a, you know, in, in air quotes, a certified shaman, or you have masters who come. So for me, it's very much about the actual level of experience that the practitioner brings. And then the place itself is secondary, you know? Um, but with that, I mean, I find that generally in city contexts, the healers are not going to want to bring people as deep um, because you got to go to work the next morning or you got to take the bus or drive home or whatever. And then when you're in the jungle, they, you know, pour it up and you can just get tied to a tree if you're misbehaving and sit there for a couple of days. And that is what it is, you know, so it's a bit more like freestyle kind of thing over there. There aren't the constraints of like needing to put your human suit back on the next morning. Um, and then also, I mean, just, oh, I, I feel very blessed. You know, the jungle itself has information like the sounds of the jungle and just, I'm sure you've spoken about the Icaros and the actual, the effect that sound has in these spaces and in it, in the synesthetic kind of weaving of experiences, the colors and the tastes that come with it all. Um, but the, but the jungle itself, you know, all of those creatures sometimes come together. I was just thinking of a frog and there's a little frog icon here. Um, yeah, just, they all work together. And I, and I do feel like they, I don't know, some, some healers I've spoken with, they'll say, you know what Lorenzo was saying, like they, that the the medicine wants to travel out of the of the country or whatever, um, and other ones say that uh, it's too cold everywhere else. The medicine doesn't want to travel; it's too cold. <laughs> so depends, yeah. But but I would say the notable difference is the you know the environment itself, and then also the diet. 
right? Like when you're in the jungle, you are in a different frequency. You're not munching on Cheetos. You're not texting. You're not distracted with everyday life that we have here. So in a way it is very unique to be able to like pull away from that and have a new environment. And that deepens, deepens, deepens the work a lot, you know, strips you bare. Yeah. Anybody else? Let, let, let me ask you one, one question while people are thinking of their next question they want to ask. <laughs> uh, you, you said you interviewed people from uh, you know, a wide range of people. Were they from uh, uh, various cultures? Like, were, were they all from like North America or Europe? Or, or where, where were the people from that you interviewed? Um, yeah. I would say the most diverse like, section is our chapter on religion where we interview people from India who are, you know, traditionally Hindu or, um, you know, Muslim people from Persia. Um, uh, let's see where else I'm looking at a map right now. We have people native American church, you know, from here. So yeah, pretty, pretty wide diversity. So, so then let, let me ask you, did they describe their experiences vastly different or kind of similar? The reason I asked this uh, Don Jose said one time he he did a ceremony for some uh, native uh, some Eskimos in the Aleutian Islands, uh-huh. and that they actually saw anacondas in their vision, which wouldn't be in their environment at all. Did you have any any comments like that? Well, mm, let's see. I did, but and you know I wasn't I wasn't interviewing quote unquote uncontacted people. And the mind is very tricky. It's very, very susceptible to suggestions. So even if I just read once, you know, that ayahuasca is from the Amazon, or even if I saw an ayahuasca image, it's very likely that it it could be seeded into my psychedelic adventure with it. So it's hard to say. But, I mean, you know, if you look at, like, Jeremy Narby's, you know, Rainbow Serpent, and if you just look at the motif of Kundalini and serpents in general, it does seem like there are some motifs in our subconscious um memory and benny shanan i don't know if anyone's familiar with his work he's a cognitive psychologist from israel who wrote this his opus is called the antipodes of the mind and it's all about the phenomenology of the ayahuasca experience so basically what this guy did is he went and interviewed different people from different communities in the amazon and in the west who drank ayahuasca and he interviewed them right after their ceremonies and said, what are some of the things that you saw? And so he created a map of the frequency of the different elements. So castles, snakes, praying mantis, um, jewels and pearls and, you know, ornate, uh, you know, lavish settings. Um, these sorts of things that kind of come up in very frequently in the ayahuasca or just the DMT realms which is it's a great study that's a really cool one so yeah we did we did see it but then again you know google ayahuasca and you already are like infiltrated with a bunch of what you can expect to have you know (laughs) yeah it's a great question it's a great question robert you have a question go ahead yes um studying the field of psychedelics since about 67 uh, and my own 5-MEO, and listening to a lot of Terrence McKenna, I seem to have settled upon the theory that the first people to take a new substance, such as the first people to take LSD, 
kind of la- left a bit of a an impression on some kind of Akashic field, which then as more people took it, it became kind of a paradigm, a standard, you know, the the colors, the flashing lights. And that he felt the same might be true with ayahuasca, that we're falling into this Amazonian snake uh, south, of, south of the border motif, but the people who have little experience, even up in downtown New York, will still tap into that same motif. Mm-hmm. And the motif itself is evolving as we incorporate more FaceTime and Googling and other things and you know, these uh, mechanical elf machines that uh, Terrence has. Uh, what do you think about that whole idea? Is that understandable? Well, yeah, I mean, would you familiar with the morphogenetic field? Oh yes, Rupert Sheldon. Yeah, I mean, it's I do. Th- it's kind of the similar thing. It's who can say, you know? But I, 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 I increasingly sense that, you know, from a personal perspective. I won't try to make any like global predictions or statements about it, but. The more I work with ayahuasca, the more I um, start to feel that I'm actually processing things that aren't mine of this life, you know? Like, there's a trans-temporal kind of healing thing happening. So healing uh, pain from war, uh, from my ancestors, heal it. Just st- sometimes there's just things in me, and I'm very clearly like, oh, that's not me. So... I do, I do think that we have cellular memory, you know, we have this memory in our bodies and it's true actually, there are behavioral psychologists who actually do research on political decision-making and you know, you can have like rational decisions laid out for you, but people won't make the rational decision, you know, and that's because we're animals. We have these, we have memory in our bodies and we remember scarcity and we remember uh, sexuality or these things that are just encoded in us. And so with that, I mean, I, that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the trans. Am I, am I kind of touch? I, I know what you're saying. I'm not like cross, cross cultural <laughs> issue that you're talking about here. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, it gets kind of, I think kind of interesting when you, you see the indigenous people who have been in, enmeshed in this culture for millennia, you know, for it's, it's part of who they are. How, how do they feel? <laughs> about, you know, not just ayahuasca tourism, but about the fact that uh, so many people all around the world, not just in the West, really, are, are becoming, you know, you know, brought into this whole environment. Um, yeah. I mean, I certainly can't speak for all indigenous no, people. No, there's a few that you know. Let's do that. But the people that I know, there's a variety of responses. Um and I think that no matter what, everybody says that, you know, you can take the medicine, but it's with respect and with acknowledgement of where they come from and with patience and without the hubris of, you know, the Western <laughs> uh, mind, which is very, you know, it's just the thing. We just, we take it and run with it and we think we know what we're doing. I'm speaking for myself, you know, even me, a feeling like imposter syndrome writing the book. Holy yeah, you're, you're speaking for me too. So, you know, go ahead. You know, I know what you mean. So, yeah, I mean, there, there, uh, recently there was an ayahuasca conference that was indigenous only, and it was in Acre, Brazil, which is like a, a jungle state in, in Western Brazil. And it was very strictly like no press, no Westerners, you know, they really wanted to keep it um, within their 
people and they were, but it was intercultural indigenous. So there were people coming from Colombia, there were people coming from Peru, from Vienna. Um, and I think that, you know, what came out of it was a sense of, yeah, like we people need to respect our cultures, especially with like, um, there was something issued about hape or like dape it's called. It's a tobacco snuff, probably familiar with it. Um, and I see people using it like a club drug sometimes, you know, you go out and it's kind of more of like a casual thing. And there are, there are communities who, I think they were Yawanawa people, They're, they make actually like these kinds of bracelets, um, who very much disapprove of like the casual use of this sacred medicine. So I think more than anything, the conflict comes from the lack of reverence and reciprocity. Um, but if you're using it with integrity and respect and patience, um, I have personally, I haven't seen people saying, you know, white people inherently cannot work with this medicine. It's more just the, the attitude that, you know, Westerners tend to bring with it. It seems like it's really more important for white people to learn how to work with this medicine because they can learn so much from it. You know, that, that, uh, I, I think that's part of what, what you are in, involved in, you and, and so many people uh, who are working with you, both the indigenous people and Westerners, who are mm -hmm. trying to find ways to uh, introduce this medicine to other cultures because it isn't, it, you know, we don't have the rituals. We, we don't have the training manual, like you said. Yeah. We don't, you're trying to learn how to use this. Now, the, the rituals have been, you know, established for, for generations. But now we need rituals that we can uh, interact with. And what I found a little disturbing in, in the practice I was involved in is that uh, the group I was involved in eventually started uh, changing the music uh, from traditional Akaros to, uh, uh, Akaros to, to uh, other music. And, and, you know, I just can't attend the ceremony that, that has electronic music or something like that. It's just yeah. not the same. It doesn't feel quite right. And so that's why I'm hoping that we can evolve some rituals that are cross-cultural that, that are comfortable for all of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the big opportunity, you know, that's, that's what's so cool. At, at the end of the day, that's what's been really interesting is that there's, there's plenty of people writing and talking about ayahuasca, but we tend to talk about ayahuasca like it's just ayahuasca. You know, or when you talk about the commodification of psychedelics and going mainstreaming with medicine and stuff, they talk about just mushrooms. But you have to realize, as you were saying, it's like there's indigenous communities who have been developing this like unbelievably sophisticated technology of ritual and sound and memory and movement that's like integral to the entire experience of healing. And you know, the things that we're usually working to heal are anxiety, um, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and eating disorders. Like these are the main guys, which most of us in the West experience to a certain degree because it's, I believe it's cultural actually, you know, it's biomedicine is good as a lot of things, but like healing those nebulous illnesses are not one of them, but it is community and song and space holding and container and continuity that does does heal those things i think so we don't want to throw is it throwing the baby out with the bath water do we want to say that you know what i mean like you don't want to no, no, that, you, you know where that comes from i won't I, I know where that comes from i'm just too old uh, but, <laughs> where's the original baby question. go ahead go ahead larry okay um i'm switching gears here a little bit um because you mentioned snuff so 
there is a huge tradition in the Amazon about tobacco, the myths yeah. of origin tobacco. Origin of tobacco often has something to do with the origin of language. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I have never once thought about this. They're both spiritual beings, for lack of a better word, in the Amazon that are plant-based. What do they think of each other? Do they even pay any attention to each other? The plants? Yeah, tobacco and ayahuasca. Again, per- personally, yeah, yeah. I mean, the per- the tobacco activates the ayahuasca, okay, big time, you know. But again, I've also worked with ayahuasca without tobacco. But now that I am within, I'm mostly working within the Shipibo tradition. It's like things are getting rocky. Light up a mapacho, where you begin. You mapacho is the type of tobacco. So in in South America, we usually have a one type of tobacco called Nicotiana rustica. And then in the north, we have Nicotiana tabacum. So that's the one we have in the cigarettes we smoke. The rustica has much higher in nicotine alkaloids, psychoactive nicotine alkaloids. So you're not trying to like, you don't want to inhale that stuff. You're really going to put yourself, you get high. For, you feel tobacco high, you know? It seems like you know. Been there. Uh, been there. <laughs> So, yes, I do think that they have relationship, and I myself am just beginning to get deep in my relationship with tobacco, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's a, the mysteries, man. <laughs> Lots to learn. Now, what, what about other uh, admixtures to ayahuasca? I know that uh, I've had experiences with uh, Datura and other things. Do, do, is that yeah. common in the groups that you've uh, worked with? It's not, no. I mean, yeah, if you go like the Sequoia, they do use, they call it Bayi, which is also Datura, um, but it's a, an initiatory admixture. So you're not trying to have, I mean, it's after 10, 20 years of practice and work, and this is, it's a plant that can cause cardiac arrest, you know, so it's not a joke. It's very serious. Um, yeah, our, our group had been together for quite a while before we did that the first time, and it, it, it was uh, <laughs> never repeated. Let me kind of shift gears just a little bit more, too, because yeah. uh, we've had a, a number of uh, people talking uh, about uh, various uh, you know, forms of ayahuasca tourism, which isn't uh, getting good, good repute. But the, mm-hmm. the more specific question, since you happen to be a young woman, uh, yeah. And they are the most young women are the most vulnerable to uh, shoddy uh, ayahuasca tourism. Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of advice can you give, not just to young women, but to anybody who is who is you know just feeling their way for the first time and would mm-hmm. like to become more involved in in authentic ayahuasca experiences? Yeah, great question. Well, um, there's a website called chakruna.com. And or .net, sorry, chakruna.net. Um, and they recently published guidelines for sexual abuse in ayahuasca circles. So it's a pretty exhaustive list of like different questions you can be asking, different approaches to take. But I mean, you know, from I, I guess looking back now, I would say the things to do are one, do your research, you know, know, get if you can be in touch with people who have previously been to the center, reach out. Um, be in touch with your facilitators, so people who are not the shamans or the servers necessarily, but you know who, who you can you you develop a rapport, a relationship with them. Um, if you really want to go big, you know, bring a friend with you. Uh, make sure that you're there's a buddy system, accountability. Um, and then there's one line I really like in those guidelines, which goes: 
he's a shaman, not a saint, which basically means like, don't assume anything, you know, like don't assume. I mean, people in the jungle are just like us, you know, and they have sexual desires and impulses. And if you have a young, pretty girl that's hanging around all the time, you know, it may not be, it may look like you are offering your, you know, it's just, you need to be clear about these things. So um, there's no like law that shamans can't sleep with the people who come. So it's really about being very clear. And I think that's where facilitators are very important because they're translating those intercultural complexities in a way um, that sometimes, you know, we don't, we don't get in by that first experience, like coming in a tank top and going around or whatever. You just be, but, you be know, another thing I think facilitators are, are good for is depending on, on what your intention is going to the jungle for an experience. I know that I'm a Vietnam vet and there's a number of Vietnam veterans groups that are going to the jungle now for uh, treatment with PTSD. And we're going to have some uh, on here uh, in, in a few weeks that uh, we've had on before and uh, hearing the results are just astounding. You know, that, that I know that without ayahuasca, I wouldn't be here right now. And, and I know that with a lot of my friends too. Uh, it, you know, it's a very important, medicine it's a very important plant and yet uh like you say if we're not careful it gets too uh uh too sensationalized i should say we don't want to go back to the lsd phrase of the 60s and and ayahuasca is getting so popular so many people are talking Mm -hmm. about it that don't really know much so i want to circle back around to how did you connect with Daniel Pinchbeck and uh, work him into writing a book with you? And I mean, that's a real coup. Let me tell you, I know Daniel pretty well. <laughs> Not real well, but we're, we've been friends a long time. Yeah. How, how did that come about? So I mentioned earlier, I worked at Evolver, which right. was a company that he started. Um, and at the time, I had written my undergraduate thesis on ayahuasca. So I wrote this like little book called God's Multicolored People. And it was all about working with the Sequoia um, in Ecuador and telling the story from, we call them like personal ethnography and, and anthropology. So, you know, not having this like cool, distant approach, but actually weaving your own who you are and what you're doing. So I very much wrote about being an awkward white girl in the forest and not having any idea what I was doing and whatever. Um, And I showed it to Daniel and he loved it. And, you know, we stayed in touch over the years, but I moved to Spain. I lived in Spain for two and a half years. I did my master's there. Um, And Daniel had been, uh, you know, offered to write a book about ayahuasca. He was asked to write a book about it. Um, And he's, you know, I guess, frankly, he said, I'm a bit, stuck and you know I remember you wrote this thing do you want to you want to be a research assistant and we can collaborate so I moved back to New York I was already going and yeah and then I just set up the interviews and I picked that back up and eventually I was with the gentleman named Barnaby Rue who's a professor at New York University maybe you know his work Um, and I was doing an interview with him and he said hey wait a minute why don't you write the book too And I said, holy cow, why don't I write the book? What a crazy idea. And then I asked Daniel, can I write the book? And he said, yeah, I was going to ask you anyway. Great. 
And, and so, and it really worked out very nicely for me. So I'm, I'm infinitely grateful. I got like a big leg up with, you know, kind of boost with that. But um, I think I've been wielding this power pretty, you know, graciously and patiently. And it's been really fun. Yeah. And the, I mean, the process of co-authoring is like an adventure, you know, because you never know. I guess it was, I mean, Daniel and I are both kind of abstract figures. <laughs> So like being like, okay, let's sit down and write the thing. And, but it was fun. We actually had a lot of fun interviewing different people. Him and I had arguments writing the book, you know, like really, but we could, we should almost do a behind the scenes of the book, like the different, at some point he was calling me the ayahuasca sheriff because he thought I was getting too judgmental about people's use of ayahuasca. <laughs> I, can, I can hear him saying that. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, you know, he's more of like a, into life remixing and evolving and doing things. Like- I, I, won't, I, won't ev- I won't ask you any of your pet names for him, but that's okay. But, <laughs> but you know, Dan- Daniel is a, a brilliant guy, but he could be difficult to work with, so I'm very impressed that you two pulled that off. I'm not too easy to work with either, so I think we were both equally unpleasant and <laughs> just fine. <laughs> now, now you're on a book tour right now, and you you just uh, you f- just finished uh, working with uh, uh, a, a, a comedian who's one of my favorites because since I heard him on Joe oh, Rogan, great, you know him, yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, it's actually not only did we finish, we're actually just beginning, which is crazy. Oh. Um, so Shane Moss is a dear friend of mine. Him and I met this summer, and we were walking around barefoot at a festival that we were both speaking at in, in Hungary. And we didn't stop talking for four and a half days. We were just talking about science and psychedelics and evolution and everything. And so Shane runs us um, two, two main projects he does. He does um, psychedel- um, stand-up science, which is all about you know, interviewing scientists and showcasing their research, but also making jokes about evolution and bizarre reproduction patterns and just the oddities of life and science. Um, and then he has another show called Head Talks. I'm sorry, uh, that's our show. Um, uh, a Good Trip, which is all about drugs. And, the, you know, the main mission is to really destigmatize and educate about psychedelics. Um, and so this third sort of initiative is called Head Talks. So it's about psychedelics and science, so psychedelic science. So, yeah, so Shane and I, I I'm like the, you know, the guest for now. And um I do a 20-minute to 30-minute kind of lecture on ayahuasca, put it into context. I do a basic kind of overview for lay uh, audiences. And then Shane goes up and does a set about, you know, psychedelics and science. Um, and then we have a Q&A after. And I have to say, it's been unbelievably fun. I was a little bit nervous, you know, just going up to stage and being all over cities, I don't know, with populations which might be maybe a bit more conservative or I just don't know who I'm talking to, you know. And it's we've gotten really, really great feedback. We've had all sold-out shows so far. So we're going to hit up a bunch more cities um, in February and May and, and onwards. I'm loving it. It's really fun. Anybody who isn't familiar with, with Sean Moss, uh, you, you, I first learned about him, I think it was like three or four years ago, he was on Joe Rogan. And he's all over YouTube now. He's got some of the funniest stuff. And when I find myself, because I, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I get myself <laughs> uptight sometimes. When I find myself getting so uptight, I can't get to sleep at night. I'll, I'll smoke a joint and listen to two or three of his bits on YouTube, and, and it just relaxes me. He is one of the funniest guys. He's got some great 
you know, takes on things so, so off kilter that, that you don't expect and say, oh, I, I should have thought of that myself. You know, he really, so I, I envy you traveling around with him. He is a, we're a having, fun guy. We're having too much fun. It shouldn't be allowed. I'm like, is this my life? Like we're driving in the car or the gas station or it is, we're not smoking DMT. We're just <laughs> and so if you get to San Diego, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll, 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 I'll, we'll I'll, I'll check, I'll check your schedule. But uh, anyhow, it's, it's something I hope, and you guys are doing this in conjunction, uh, at least in some events with maps. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, maps is a, is a, is a sponsor and they're, oh, I opened something up here. Uh, maps is a sponsor and we're also working with dance safe, which is a right. nonprofit, you know, harm reduction education. Um, so, and that's been really great. Yeah. And then I work also with, um, you know, my organization that I work with, Temple of the Way of Light, which is a retreat center in Peru, Ayahuasca Retreat Center, and their sister nonprofit, which is called the Chaikuni Institute. So it's all about reforestation, regenerative ayahuasca production. Um, and those are kind of like the, you know, the, the different aspects we bring to this show. Because really, at the end of the day, you know, we're doing these shows, but the idea is to create culture and community where we do the shows, right? So it's not like, you do the thing, you say, oh, that was weird, and you, know, you go back to your daily life. So we're actually supporting communities making psychedelic societies if they haven't been started already, or book clubs, or you know, salons, or whatever it is, just to create more of a culture uh, where you can have people to integrate with. And so those organizations, MAPS, Dance Safe, um, can support that moving forward, really transforming culture, grassroots style. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll, I'll cross pollinate you guys with some people that are going to be on uh, next year who have start. You know, some guys got together about six months ago to try get more people to come out of the psychedelic closet on social media, and in just a few months now they have like four hundred people in forty countries. And their goal is to have 100,000 people by the end of next year. And oh, so wow. uh, tying them in with some of the things you're doing. And, and it's just time for us to start standing up and talking about this and yeah. to put your mind at ease a little bit in conservative communities. You know, you, you won't go to a community where there aren't a number of, of people who are well into psychedelics. And in particular, there'll be a lot of young people who will come into your shows because it's the first chance they've had to in public to kind of acknowledge the fact that they're interested in these things. So yeah. the, the service that you guys are doing, particularly in the smaller towns, I think is really valuable. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I applaud you both for that. Any yeah. chance you think I can get the two of you on maybe at the end of your tour uh, next year sometime? Yeah, definitely. For sure. Why, yeah. why don't we do that when, when uh, unless you, we can do either do it to publicize some uh, tours to smaller towns or at the end of the year tour. But I'd love to get the two of you on to kind of uh, give us a wrap on how it was and how you uh, found people in, in uh, across the land. Here. Yeah, that would be fun. We could do it in February or May or September. Those are some of our dates. We're going to be releasing some of those dates like actually tomorrow. So yeah, can well, do, can do. Well, this this will be out in a podcast a week from today, and I'll I'll put those dates in the program notes for the podcast. Please and do. then uh, I'll just stay in touch with with the two of you guys. And then uh, when you think it's coming an auspicious time, we'll just set it up and do it. Yeah, I hope really I, we see like I see people from different places. There we're coming to a lot of cities, so if we're nearby, please come out. It's so fun. It's like it's too fun. <laughs> What, what, what cities do you know you're going to right now? 
All right, so I would pull up my map here, but in February, we're going to be doing Savannah, Atlanta, Chattanooga. We're mostly hitting the south, um, and we'll finish up in, in, in Austin again. Um, then we're going to be in, we're going to be doing the Dakotas all the way. I'm looking at a map in my mind. We're going, we're going west and then to the west coast. I just want to, I want to tell you, Sophia, I just so admire what you're doing. And I, I truly you. believe you're such an inspiration for young people that I, I uh, hope you keep up the good work for the rest of your life. Thanks. T- go tell my parents that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't that generous to my own children, but I am to my grandchildren now. Yeah, <laughs> I, finally right, got, right, right. I finally figured it out. You know, it's, it's tough being a parent, but. Uh, you yeah. know, well, life is weird. It's a funny adventure. You got to. You make it, you know, so. You'll, you'll make it. You'll make it. And uh, <laughs> my, my best to your parents. <laughs> and listen, we're, we're out of time tonight now. And so I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, this is going to be our last live salon until next year. And I'll be in touch with all of uh, you for uh, uh, after the holidays. But uh, until next year, everybody, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.